Well, happy Resurrection Sunday to you all again. I want us to start this morning about, uh, with thinking about Christ's post-resurrection appearances. In fact, I want you to pretend it's your job to direct Christ's post-resurrection appearances. Jesus has 40 days to make some appearances after his resurrection before he ascends to heaven. This is the final leg of his time on earth, so he needs to make this time count. Now it's time to finish laying the foundation of the church and get the word out. You're his campaign manager, and it's time to get this church movement started. So how would you direct his resurrection appearances? I'll tell you how most church growth strategists would answer that question. At first, we need Jesus to appear to the masses. He's got to win over the crowds. There was a time where thousands of people hailed him as the Messiah, but they kind of turned on him. So we need to win those people back. Let's have Jesus appear at the temple. That'll convince people that he's the Messiah. And what, what better way to start the church than like five to 10,000 new converts just right off the bat? Second, the risen Jesus needs to appear to the religious leaders. Now, it might be a little awkward at first because they just handed him over to be crucified, but he's forgiving, so he'll forgive them. And, you know, they're the power brokers of Israel. We, we need the leaders on board. The church is not going to get off the ground unless we get the leaders of Israel. So Jesus has to show up to them, let them touch his scars or whatever, and we need to get the church movement going. We've got to get the leaders. In fact, why stop there? Let's go right to the top. Jesus needs to appear to Pontius Pilate. And why not Tiberius Caesar, the Roman emperor? Right? Let's convince the guys ruling the known world that Jesus, he's the risen Messiah. Why wait until the Constantine in the fourth century? Let's just Christianize the world now. Let's, let's get it going like early. Today, that would be, probably be hailed as a smart, innovative church growth strategy. But man's ways are not God's ways, and man's wisdom is foolishness to God. God had much greater plans to build his church to his greater glory. It didn't look anything like this. The Father did not direct the Son to make any sort of grandiose resurrection appearances. Just the opposite. I'll give you a quick recap of Christ's activities on, on day one, Easter Sunday, resurrection day number one. Early Sunday morning, a group of women discover the empty tomb. They run back, tell the disciples. Peter and John come to check it out. They confirm the tomb is empty. They head back, don't know what to make of it all. The women have made their way back to the tomb at this point, And now finally, Jesus shows up. He makes his first appearance to Mary Magdalene, then to the other women with her. It's kind of odd, though. Why would he do that? Why make your first appearance to these women who they have no power, they have no influence? What's the strategy here? Well, these women go back. They tell the other disciples that they had seen the risen Lord, but they were not believing them. Now, after that, what happens? Nothing. Sunday morning passes. Sunday noon passes. Sunday afternoon passes. Nothing happens. There are no more resurrection appearances. Jesus is MIA. We expect more on the first day, right? Like, what is Jesus doing here? He's wasting precious time. Makes us wonder, is there even a strategy? He could be doing so much more. Now, Scripture does say that at some point, like Sunday afternoon, Jesus appeared to Peter alone. The fact of that is recorded in 1 Corinthians 15.5. But the appearance itself is not recorded. And that just makes us wonder, like, why not? What? 
what was going on. That, I guess I could see how that would be strategic to appear to Peter alone, but then why are we not even told about it? In all, it's just a bewildering first day. Resurrection Sunday is passing away and Jesus is getting very little done. He's not appearing to many people. He's not doing what we would expect. It appears he's just wasting time. In fact, what happens next seems like even more waste of time. As the daylight hours of Sunday are almost over, Jesus finally makes another appearance. Finally. But, but not like you might think. He appears to two random disciples. These are nobodies. They, had, they weren't part of the 12, just two random disciples. And even at that, they won't even recognize it's him until the last second. It's like, what's going on here? Jesus, you're you're killing daylight. You're wasting day one of Easter. You're wasting time. Don't you have more important things to do than than show up and and play tricks on a couple of random disciples? And what kind of strategy is this? But I hope you know and, and trust you know that the Lord knows precisely what he's doing. This challenges us because his ways are not our ways. But the good news is that in this next appearance, we get some answers. In fact, it's, it's this next appearance that's the key to unlock the, the strategy of Christ's post-resurrection appearances. And that's of paramount importance for the church because we need to get on board with his strategy. Now, I don't care about man's self-glorifying church growth strategies. I just want to know, what, what was the Lord's plan for building his church? And let's just do that. So you can open your Bibles now to Luke 24. Luke 24. And if you want to use a pew Bible, it's page 69 of the New Testament. Luke 24. Luke 24, and only Luke 24 records Christ's resurrection appearance to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Yet it's one of the longest accounts in Luke's gospel. In fact, it's the key to understanding much of Luke's gospel and his presentation of Jesus. At the beginning of this final chapter, the women and the disciples they found the empty tomb. They're bewildered. They're confused. And then the next thing Luke records is this. This is Sunday afternoon. And Jesus has this seemingly random encounter with two disciples. We've not heard of them before. We will not hear of them again. They weren't part of the 12. But Christ's interaction with them in the end reveals his strategy for building the church. You'll see what I mean, I trust, by the end. But we need to walk through this account together. We'll read as we go. I'll give you some points to follow along. Let's start with number one, the rendezvous. Number one, the rendezvous. Look at verse 13 to 14, Luke 24. It says, And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which is about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. Here we're introduced to two random disciples. They appear insignificant. But the fact that Luke spends so much time on them already suggests otherwise. They were present with the 11 after the resurrection. That's clear back from verse 9, which says that the women reported the empty tomb to the 11 and to all the rest. Who are all the rest? Well, Jesus had more than 12 disciples. And many of his other disciples were in Jerusalem for the Passover. And they were all gathered together there. And these two were part of that group. 
But now these two are headed home. Stands to reason they're from Emmaus, seven miles away from Jerusalem. And they're going back because they've, they've lost all hope. We'll see this unfold, but these two, they really believed that Jesus was the Messiah. But like all the rest, their hopes were dashed when he died on the cross. You know, at the triumphal entry, their faith was like a raging forest fire, but, but after the cross, it had died down to a little ember. Jesus has died. He's not coming back. That means he's not the Messiah. They were, they were duped. So it's time to go home. And as they begin their couple-hour walk home on this dusty road, they can't help but converse over everything that had taken place, Passion Week. But at some point, they hear the quickening footsteps of a traveler behind them. Verse 15, it says, While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. This traveler is none other than the risen Lord. But as a twist, they don't recognize him. This is not a case of mistaken identity. Jesus wasn't wearing a disguise. He was not sporting like a post-resurrection new haircut. This is a divine disguising of Jesus. Notice the passive tense. Their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. It's not the first time God has drawn the mist over the eyes of the disciples that they might not see some things, but God does this for good reason. This is the handiwork of a good and sovereign God who's got bigger plans here for his glory. And in this case, the fact that these two disciples don't recognize Jesus right away is of extreme significance, but we'll see that as we go on. Let's go on. Verse 17. And he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still looking sad. This word for exchanging, antibalo in the Greek, it means to throw about, to to toss something back and forth, like you're playing catch with the ball. And that describes the conversation between these two. They were bewildered and confused. And they're just throwing thoughts and ideas back and forth about what took place? They're just trying to make sense, like what just happened over the weekend ending in Christ's death? And as Jesus approaches, he basically asks, like, well, what's all the fuss about? What are you guys so vehemently talking about? And then it says, they stood still looking sad. That's like one of the most depressing verses of the Bible. Luke's gospel has a motif of walking. He often describes people walking or in transit, which means when someone stands still, it it stands out. And so Christ's words stop these two disciples in their tracks. They had so many hopes and dreams of Jesus as the Messiah, but those were all ripped away. And now they're left with this gaping wound and it hurts. It's painful. They felt probably betrayed, led astray, duped. I mean, how how would you feel if everything you thought was true is now, in your mind, proven false? You would feel the same way. They're grieving. They're confused. And Christ's question, it just floods their minds with all the sadness of the weekend. And in addition, they're also shocked that this traveler doesn't know what just happened. Verse 18, one of them named Cleopas 
answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? Here we're finally introduced to one of the two witnesses here, these two disciples. We only learn one of their name, Cleopas. Most likely Luke names him because he was known to his original audience. He could have verified this account. And trust me, this story, that's, that's one you'd be telling everyone for the rest of your life, as we'll see at the end. But don't you, hit, don't you, don't you detect a hint of exasperation in the words of Cleopas here? He's dumbfounded that this traveler knows nothing of Jesus and his crucifixion. It's like, come on, you've been living under a rock. Everyone knows about what just happened to Jesus in Jerusalem. Like it says in Acts, the life and death of Jesus, they didn't happen in a corner. It was known to all. But of course, Jesus knew about these things. They had happened to him. But he's the master teacher, and as he often does, he, he asks probing questions to draw out the thoughts and intentions of a person's heart. He's testing their understanding, finding out where it's lacking that he might later fill it in. So he doesn't give in to Cleopas' counter question, but Jesus fires right back, verse 19. He said to them, what things? And Jesus is just opening the door for Cleopas to just let it out. Go on, tell me, what, what's troubling you so much? Why is there this dark storm cloud over your head? What's going on? So we find, secondly, now the report. Number two, the report. Verse 19. And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, the things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him over to the sentence of death and crucified him. At this point, Cleopas thinks this traveler is, is rather dim. So he gives him a little bit of background on Jesus. He reports of Jesus the Nazarene. That's to distinguish among the other Jesuses. It was a common name. But this Jesus was a prophet. A true prophet of God in the sight of God and the people, mighty in word and deed. That testimony is backed up by God and man all throughout Luke's gospel. Jesus is more than a prophet, but certainly no less than a prophet. And by word and deed, he showed himself to be of God. Nobody spoke such clear, authoritative truth like Jesus. And nobody worked the works of God like Jesus. Yet despite all this, They killed him. You notice how Cleopas attributes the blame for Christ's death on the Jewish religious leaders. And rightly so. Jesus was unjustly tried and convicted by the the Jewish leaders well before he was handed over to the Romans. And the leaders themselves stirred up the crowds against Jesus. They, They turned them on Jesus. The people were fickle and they bear their share of the blame. But the leaders, as the representatives of Israel, are most guilty of the willful and unjust rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. Even to the point of crucifixion, which was just the most shameful way to die back then. It's the death of a, a worst, the worst criminal. That's a real problem, though. For as great as Jesus was, there's no way God 
would let that happen to his Messiah, right? That, that's, that's not possible. And so he says in verse 21, but we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. Here are the hopes of these disciples come to the surface that they have really placed their hope in Jesus as the deliverer and redeemer of Israel. And he was, but not entirely as they expected. You see that these Jews, like, like all the rest, they fell prey to the, the same misunderstanding of the Messiah's mission. The leaders were mostly to blame for this, but they had the scriptures. They were clear they, they should have known better. But that day, most of the Jews were longing for the Messiah to come as a political redeemer. Now, Israel's glory days were long gone. Now they were oppressed under the thumb of the Romans, kind of like back when they were slaves in Egypt. And they longed for the Messiah. He'd come and set them free, liberate them from Rome, and then turn the tables on the nations. But you see, the Jews, they were actually selling the Messiah short. It's true, the Messiah would be a political redeemer. He will eventually usher in an everlasting kingdom of God on earth, and he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. But they failed to see how his mission included more than that. And that the Messiah came to deal with much greater enemies than Rome. I mean, what's Rome compared to sin, Satan, death itself? But they were fatally short-sighted. None of this was on their mind. And so when Jesus died on the cross, that right there disqualified Jesus from being the Messiah. Just that's it. Resurrection never even crossed their mind because the second he died on the cross, he's already out of the running for being the Messiah. That's the end of the story. The Christ, in their mind, was supposed to triumphantly conquer the Romans, not be crucified by the Romans. Cleopas then mentions that, besides all this, it's the third day. Now, Jesus had said he would rise on the third day. Even his enemies knew this. But the disciples did not believe or understand this statement. It appears, though, that these two disciples, they may have stuck around Jerusalem just in case, see what would happen. But the third day was nearly over. It was time to admit they were duped by Jesus. He was not who he said he was. They had a little flicker of hope by the testimony of the women, but at this point, it's just too little too late. Look at verse 22. It says, but also some women among us amazed us. When they were at the tomb early in the morning, and did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. Here, Cleopas accurately portrays the events of Sunday morning, but it's just not enough. You see that key phrase? It says, but him they did not see. Seeing is believing for these two disciples. You know, tall tales and empty tombs is not enough for them at this point to believe. So they're headed home. They're dejected, despairing, depressed. At this point, Jesus has heard enough. 
Cleopas has done enough talking. He's revealed all the holes in his understanding. And it's time for Jesus now to fill in those holes. So you find number three, the revelation. The rendezvous, the report. Thirdly, the revelation. If you've never read this story before, what would you expect to take place right now? You'd expect like this would be the perfect time for Jesus to reveal his secret identity, right? They just spilled the beans about their, their hopes being dashed and they were depressed that Jesus died. And so you, we expect here Jesus is going to say, hey, guys, it, it's actually me. Surprise, I'm alive. You were, you were right. Don't worry, I'm here. And they would celebrate and Jesus would lift their spirits and it would be a wonderful story and, and that it would. But that's not what happens. That was not Christ's strategy. He still has bigger plans here. And a greater revelation is in store. So let's keep going. Look at verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. And Christ's response to them is a rebuke. It's a gentle rebuke, but a rebuke nonetheless. That they're being foolish. They thought this traveler was dim, but they're being dim. They're the ones being slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets had spoken. If they had merely listened to the scriptures, they wouldn't be depressed and dejected. They would be rejoicing right now. Now listen, these Jews, they believed the Old Testament. They believed it. They read it. They heard it. They believed it came from God. They believed it was God's word. They, they believed it. But their problem was that they had a partial understanding of it. And that's not good enough. That, that doesn't count. They pigeonholed the Messiah as a political redeemer. And that led them to gloss over everything else the prophets said about the Messiah's mission. And that's, that's not acceptable. Jesus clarifies, verse 26, He says, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And they're right to expect the Christ to enter into glory. Uh, He will rule and reign and bring a kingdom over the world as the Old Testament expected. But they, they ignored the other parts. The cross comes before the crown. And he says, what wasn't that necessary? Didn't these things have to take place because they were spoken and written by the prophets? It was necessary for the Christ to suffer and die first. That was the plan. Understand, Jesus never lets these or other disciples off the hook for their failure to understand the scriptures. He never says to them, yeah, well, look, guys, I get it. The Old Testament, it's, it's big. It's complicated. It's confusing. So I see how you didn't get it all right. He never says that. He always says, like, have you not read? It's right there. You have the scriptures. He expected them to know better. And if you have the scriptures, you're accountable to know them. He never held the Gentiles accountable. They did not have the scriptures, at least to know what it said. But these were God's people. They had the privilege of the word. And so they were fully on the hook for reading it, understanding it, and believing it. Have you not read? 
It's right there. And to really rub it in, Jesus, he told them several times in advance. Listen to Luke 18, 31. It says, then he took the 12 aside and said to them, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and all the things which are written through the prophets about the son of man will be accomplished. He told them. The point is though, if you have the scriptures, you're accountable to them, to read them, to know them, to get them right. Failure to do so made them fools and God doesn't take any excuses. You have it. But the Lord is also gracious and compassionate with their shortcomings and with ours. So his rebuke is gentle. And now he's going to fill them in. They revealed all their holes in understanding Messiah. He's going to fill them in. What follows is a master class in the Old Testament. Look at verse 27. It says, then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. That verse right there merits its own sermon. In fact, maybe for Easter next year, I'll just preach the death and resurrection of Jesus just from the Old Testament. You could do that many times over. This was the greatest Bible study ever. And it's too bad we don't have a record of it. What, what did he say? What did he tell them? Wouldn't you love to hear that? We're left to speculate. It's not hard to do, though. The Old Testament is filled with many well-known verses that clearly speak of the Messiah having to suffer, even die, before entering glory. Now, I would bet that Jesus went all the way back to Genesis 3.15, the first hope of promise after the fall. Although man had brought sin and death into the world, God promised that a seed of the woman would come and crush the serpent on the head. I mean, forget Rome. We need someone to deliver us from like Satan and his deceptions. And God said the seed of the woman will do that. He will crush the serpent on the head. But doesn't also say that the serpent would wound him on the heel. There would be a little price to pay for crushing the serpent's head. Also, the deliverance we need is not just from Satan, but also from our sin and the death that results. Our sin before a holy God means we can't stand in his presence. We deserve to be cast off forever. And if we're going to dwell with him, we need to be redeemed. They were right in hoping Jesus would redeem Israel, but just redeem them from what? Redeem them from Roman rule? That, that's, that's too little. How about the rule of sin and death over the world? That's the redemption we need. But redemption, the very concept itself, comes with a price. To redeem something, you have to pay a price. Weren't they just in Jerusalem for the Passover? And didn't that commemorate the time when God redeemed the firstborn of Israel from death by the blood of the lamb placed on their doorpost? Where by that act of faith, God would pass over that house and deliver them. It came as, at a cost, the life of the lamb. That was a picture of what the Messiah would do. He would be the, the ultimate lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. We read Isaiah 53 this morning already. It speaks of the Messiah as God's servant. A lamb led to the slaughter. That God himself, he was going to provide a perfect substitute 
sacrifice to redeem his people from their sins. So I'll read again Isaiah, 50, Isaiah 53, 5 and 6. It says, But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Remember when Abraham went to sacrifice his son Isaac. And God, right before that the knife plunged into his heart, God stopped him. And God instead provided a substitute sacrifice. A ram caught in a thicket instead. On that mountain, Mount Moriah, later known as Calvary. And in that same place, roughly 2,000 years later, God was going to provide another sacrifice. He would offer up his only son this time. And this time, as the father's wrath was coming down on the son, there would be no stopping it. It would just come. His wrath was poured out on the one to save the many. But God would not allow his holy one to undergo decay. Psalm 1610. After suffering, he would rise to the glory of eternal resurrection life. And this stone, which the builders rejected, would become the chief cornerstone of a new house. Now all who follow him by faith enter that house, his church, and receiving that the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And I'll ask you, have, have you entered that house by faith? Have you recognized your sin and your guilt before a holy God? But you come to Jesus by faith and cry out for him to redeem you from your sin. It's what you must do. He's Lord and Savior. He must be your Lord and your Savior by faith. And do that today. You believe in him as your Lord and Savior. God promises to hear that cry and to transform you, to save you, to redeem you. There are dozens and dozens of more verses in the Old Testament we could see to to continue to support this, perhaps another time. For now, suffice it to say, Jesus gave these two, literally the greatest Old Testament Bible study on the death of Jesus ever. And as it always does, the word has an impact. We find number four, the recognition. Number four, the recognition. Look at verse 28. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going further. But they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it's getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. The sun was nearing the horizon as these disciples came to Emmaus, but they weren't ready for this Bible study to be over. This random traveler had just opened their minds, and it wasn't by some secret knowledge. It was simply by the clear exposition of the scriptures. Everything was starting to make sense. They wanted more. So they urged him to stay. That word means they were really pleading and and compelling him to stay. Like, you got to stay with us. We we need some more. And Jesus was happy to oblige. That was the response he was trying to elicit from them. Verse 30. It says, when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, 
began giving it to them. That's an interesting verse. They were not observing communion here, but the words certainly draw, draw that to our mind. Jesus takes bread, breaks it, or blesses it, breaks it, gives it. In this case, what really stands out is they were treating Jesus like the guest of honor because it was the host's duty to break and bless the bread, but they gave that honor to Jesus. But it's hard not to see this dinner perhaps serving as a type or foreshadowing of the Lord's Supper where where all future disciples would come to see the risen Lord in the breaking of the bread, so to speak. Speaking of though, verse 31 says, Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. Some have suggested as Jesus broke the bread, they saw the scars on his hands and they finally realized it was Jesus. But no natural explanation is needed here. Just as they were divinely prevented from recognizing Jesus, now God takes the blinders off and they can see him for who he is. Another divine passive is used. It says their eyes were opened, so they recognized him. This whole time, they were traveling and talking with the risen Lord. And they realize it's true. He, he is risen. But as soon as they realize it's him, he's gone. Almost sounds like a, a cruel trick, right? They, they finally realize it's the Lord and then he's gone. And there's actually immense significance in this. And we're almost ready to see it. But let's just finish the, the passage. Number five, the response. Number five, the response. Verse 32, they said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? These two disciples had just seen the risen Lord. That means they're among the first witnesses to the resurrection. And so here they're marveling. But do you see, what are they marveling at? In verse 32. They're not marveling at seeing the Lord. No, they're they're rather marveling at understanding the scriptures. You see, before the Lord opened their physical eyes to see Jesus in front of them, he had opened up the eyes of their heart to see Jesus in the word. And listen, that that was the greater view because now they can go and see Jesus anytime in the scriptures. And see the power of God's word explained. Jesus merely exposited the scriptures to these two disciples. He rightly divided the word of truth. And as a result, their hearts were burning within them. And realized long before they knew it was Jesus, their hearts were burning with joy because they realized it was all true. They realized it was all true. The Messiah really did have to suffer and die before he entered his glory. In fact, he had to do everything that, that Jesus did, which just means that, you know, he really was the Messiah. They, they came to believe he really was the Messiah before they recognized him. And their hope is not in vain. And in that moment, the small ember of their faith was fanned back into an inferno. And it wasn't by witnessing the risen Lord, but it was by seeing the Lord in the word. Do you see that? 
And as a result, they were filled with joy. It's a joy they should have had all along. It's a joy that, that's all as a consequence of understanding and believing the good news. And it leads to a response. That they, they couldn't keep this good news to themselves. That they knew the Lord was risen. And so verse 33 says they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem. I mean, who cares if it's getting dark? These two are running the, the seven miles back to Jerusalem that instant to tell the others. It, this just can't wait until the morning. Jesus has risen. It says, and they found gathered together the 11 and those who were with them, verse 34, saying, the Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. They began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. And then, of course, verse 36 says, while they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, peace be to you. We could keep going, but I think it's now time to draw all this together. So we'll finish with number six, the reason. Number six, the reason. Why does Luke write his gospel account? He says back in chapter one, three and four, that he's writing out everything in consecutive order so that you may know the exact truth of the things which you've been taught. He's meticulously recording the words and works of Jesus that you, you get it straight. This, of course, reaches a climax with the death and resurrection of Jesus. And with the resurrection, everything changes. Christ's death is transformed from a loss to a gain, from defeat to victory. The cross itself is changed from a symbol of death to a symbol of life. And that's because in his death on the cross, Jesus was making atonement for our sins that we might live. And in his resurrection, he proves that payment was complete. There's nothing left to pay. That's why he's no longer in the grave. Jesus has power over death itself and now offers a living hope to all who follow him. Everything changes with the resurrection. So Luke records this Emmaus account to testify that Jesus is risen. He's alive. That's not the only reason he records this account. You see, how do we really know Jesus is risen? We haven't seen him. How did Luke's audience know Jesus is risen? They hadn't seen him. And that's always been the challenge and always will be. Seeing, or rather believing, without seeing. How do we know he is alive? Why should you believe in the risen Jesus. But here's where we find the power of Luke 24. Because in this passage, Luke is testifying how a couple of disciples came to see that Jesus is alive. But notice, how did they come to see that Jesus is alive? It was not by witnessing him in person. No, but, but first, they came to believe that he was alive by witnessing the risen Lord in the scriptures. They believed based on the scriptures before they saw Jesus. And their belief was not founded on personal experience or sight, but on the word of God. I mean, just think, for this resurrection appearance, why were their eyes prevented from seeing Jesus? Imagine if they recognized Jesus from the start. They would have been thrilled, of course. 
And Jesus may have gone on to explain the scriptures to them, and that'd be nice, but their testimony would be this. Jesus is, Jesus is alive. We know this because we've seen him with our eyes. And that's a good testimony. We need that testimony. We get that from others in the Bible. But the Lord wanted these two to have a different testimony. Their eyes were veiled so that they could testify that Jesus is alive. We know because we've seen him in the scriptures. I mean, don't you see? It's so clear. It's been written. Have you not read Moses and the prophets? Don't you know it was necessary that the Messiah had to suffer and die exactly like Jesus did before entering the glory? Don't you see it? Remember, what was it that made their hearts burn within them? It was the joy that came from understanding the scriptures and realizing it's all true. And Jesus just did everything the Messiah was supposed to do. That's, that's hundreds and even over a thousand years old. He just did all that. It was true. And so you put together the power of this passage is not just the testimony that Jesus is alive, but also that the word is alive. That God's word is alive. God's son is alive. And we know that because God's word, the Bible, is alive. That's why you too should believe in the risen Lord. The incarnate word testifies of the written word. You can see Christ's strategy here for building the church. He knew he would depart. Yet all of his future disciples would have to believe in him by faith and his resurrection. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. True disciples must believe this, but how will they believe? They won't see him, but their belief will not be by sight, but it won't be blind either. You realize that your belief is not by sight, but it's also not blind. It'll be based on what has been written. And Jesus knows the future of the church will not be founded on sight or personal experience, but on the living word of God. So he leaves this strategic testimony that God's word is just as much alive as he is. And that's where you go to see him still. It has been written. And as it's all come to pass, you can be assured it's true The word is alive. So see Jesus alive in the word and believe, and then you come alive. Some, to be sure, don't believe the Bible. They think it doesn't make sense. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are passing away. And maybe the veil remains over your eyes this morning. But God still opens blind eyes. Now, I pray that you would see your sin and guilt before God. But see his wisdom in in the foolishness of the cross. That God sent his own son to die for you. Pay your debt in your place. And rise again to offer new life. A changed life and everlasting life. Just come and see this. Pray. Pray to God. Ask that he would open your eyes. Give you new eyes. Even a new heart. He promises to always answer that prayer. To reveal himself to you. So you pray that God would reveal to you the risen Lord. And then you open your Bible and you start searching because he, that's where he already has revealed the risen Lord. 
You know, later in this chapter, it's Sunday evening of Easter, and Jesus, like we read, he appears to the eleven. And it says this, just to finish, Luke 24, 45. It says, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. If you're here and you believe, you're a witness too. You are called to witness the risen Lord to others that that they may believe and enter life. But know that your witness is not based on sight. You haven't seen him, but it's not blind either. It's based on what has been written. Therefore, do not neglect God's word. Seek it diligently that you may understand it. There's no excuses for partial understanding. You've been given the treasure of the living word, and it's on you to, to mine it and to read it, to study it, to understand it, to see the Lord and his will in his word. Work, school, sports, entertainment, family. Our lives are busy, they're full. But don't let stuff choke out the living word. Now it would be to your own peril. How much of our own suffering is self-inflicted because we don't see God's word and will in his scriptures? How much of our joy is lost because we forsake that the teaching and the preaching of the word? God's word is sufficient for everything we need for life and godliness. So draw near to God through his word. Find all treasures of wisdom in his word and see the risen Lord in his word. The risen Lord himself very much wants you to place your confidence not in sight or in personal experience, but in the scriptures. After all, it is these which speak of him. And the living word testifies that he is risen. So always remember 1 Peter 1, 23, that you've been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Our Lord God in heaven, we do indeed trust and believe you and your word, that your word does endure forever. And the Bible we hold in our hands is not just some, it's not just some book. It's the living and enduring word of God. You've revealed yourself to us, who you are, the creator, the sustainer, the redeemer, and the judge. And you revealed what you've done for us that we might be reconciled to you. Yours is the wisdom in this plan of sending your own son, God the son, to die on the cross, rise from the dead to redeem us, to buy us back from the the slave market of sin that we might be with you forever. This is the glory of the cross. To the world, it's, it's foolish. It's dumb. It makes no sense. But to those who have eyes to see your word, it's so clear and it's true. We believe, we confess, we trust you, and we pray you continue to open our eyes to the word that we may see it and and have joy and live rightly before you. 
any here this morning who do not know you, Lord, we pray you open their eyes. Give them new eyes to see you in your word. Convict them to read their scriptures and they will find truth for life there and for new life as well. We glorify you. We exalt the risen Christ this morning. We pray as we depart, it encourages our hearts to to know we believe for good reason. Our faith is not blind. It is based on the living, enduring word of God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.